It was 2006. The big movie talk centered around former Vice President Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And it opened the world's eyes to global warming phenomena like never before. But how well did the world listen? We'll discuss what's happened since and where we are today in the climate change controversy with Elizabeth Colbert from The New Yorker. And we'll talk about the power of weather in movies with Minnesota Public Radio's movie blogger extraordinaire, Ewan Care. Sit back, grab the popcorn, and get ready for the coming attractions. It's Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Hello again, everybody, and thanks for joining us. I'm Paul Hutner, and the rest of the weather team is here in the studio with me today. Dr. Mark Seeley, Professor of Climatology and Meteorology from the University of Minnesota, and Minnesota Public Radio Meteorologist and my weather cohort, Craig Edwards. Welcome back, you guys. Good to be back directly face-to-face with you, Paul. <laughs> yes, nice to have you back at the helm, Paul. It's great to be here. And uh, weather headlines this week locally and regionally. A good soaker finally this past weekend. Mark, uh, finally some beneficial rain where we really needed it. Uh, certainly, we eliminated that D2 category in southeast Minnesota. They were in severe drought designated by the drought monitor. Uh, Good. But that was enough rain to alleviate that. And furthermore, uh, looks like we might be evolving into a pattern that will further alleviate that south southeastern dry area of the state. And Craig, uh, you and I were looking at the maps, and uh, I certainly concur with Mark's notion there. The weather pattern looks like it's changing for the wetter after really what was the driest early April on record for many locations. We'll take it, won't we? Yeah, wasn't that something, Paul, about we talked about the secondary crest of the Red River that was going to go up to maybe 41 feet with a 75% probability, and that got pulled back pretty quickly, and uh, we we talked about that off air. But, uh, you know, they were really spared the rain during that secondary crest, and the, a lot of the frost went out of the ground. But I, I noticed, Paul, when we look at the models, the model giveth and the model taketh away. So I, I think over the years we learned that after about uh, 84 to 90 hours, the details get fuzzy, and so we're just using broad brush estimates of what's going to happen. But I think the trend is there for warmer than normal temperatures setting up uh, maybe in the next couple of weeks or so, and perhaps opportunities for heavy rain and maybe some severe thunderstorms. I checked this morning. There's only been three thunderstorms in the Twin Cities all year, which is, to me, very unusual by the time we get to the first part of May. Well, we know one thing. It's on the way, that's for sure. And we all remember the controversy back in 2006 when Vice President Al Gore took the global warming issue from the halls of Congress and the scientific journals and placed it before millions around the world in his motion picture, An Inconvenient Truth. Since then, arguments for and against the science of global climate change have uh, shared the spotlight with major foreign and domestic issues of our time. And yet another chapter in the story was written this month when an area of the Antarctic ice shelf almost the size of New York City broke into icebergs after the collapse of an ice bridge. With the loss of the northern ice front on the Wilkins ice shelf, scientists now watching to see if further erosion will allow the ice sheets on land to start moving faster and adding extra water to the seas, threatening populated coastal areas perhaps sooner rather than later. Elizabeth Colbert is one of America's premier writers on global climate change, and she's a staff reporter at The New Yorker, formerly with the New York Times, and is the author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change. She's a recipient of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences Magazine Writing Award, and she's with us today. She joins us on Jet Streaming. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning, or, or should I say where we are currently. What's your early assessment so far on the Obama administration and climate uh, and environmental issues? Well, the administration has very clearly signaled a real change from the previous administration. Um, the president has made uh, energy issues, um, put energy issues at the top of his agenda and declared climate change to be, you know, one of the most significant problems of our time. So that is a good and welcome change from the last administration, which um, really tried to ignore climate change for the last eight years and um, I think really set us back, uh, you know, even by even more than eight years because those were crucial eight years um, when the science was really, really coming in very, very clearly uh, that global warming is real, it's happening, and um, it's a very serious problem for the world. So there's been a big change in tone. Um, a lot of things have happened. The administration uh, very quickly moved to uh, declare a carbon dioxide a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. That sets in motion a lot of things that could eventually lead to the regulation uh, of CO2 down the road. But, you know, we're, as everyone knows, only 100 days into the administration, and so we don't really know uh, where this is going to end up, how much energy, to forgive the pun, is, is going to go into this issue over the next, you know, three years. Elizabeth, uh, this is Mark Seeley from the University of Minnesota. Um, you've r written recently, or relatively recently, about how climate change is still, at least among the American public, not ranked particularly high among our national concerns or priorities. In other words, we still have a lot of the American public more concerned about economics or health right. or war, racism, education, any number of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, coincidentally, we still seem to have a perception that the disparity between the powerful and the powerless, the rich and the poor, seems to be getting greater rather than being mitigated. Amidst all of this din, can the voice of the citizen scientists on this issue be heard, do you think? Well, you know, you asked the question of our, of our era, and we're going to find out, you know, unfortunately. And as uh, scientists, you know, who work on this issue, and there are more and more of them, uh, will tell you, um, you know, time is very short, and there's this real gap, really, between, as, as, as you point out, between the public perception of the issue, how serious the issue is, and what the science tells us. And, and there are many reasons for that, one of those being that uh, climate change is something, the climate takes a long time, as you know, to respond to what we're doing. Um, so we don't see the effects immediately. It's not like, um, you know, you, you, you sort of... Um, pollute a river and you immediately see, that, see the, the, the effects. It takes actually many decades to feel the full effects. So really what we're doing is we're constantly sort of um, pumping, you know, in more CO2 and guaranteeing that the world will get warmer over the course of time, but we're leaving this problem in large measure uh, to our children. So, you know, we can really leave our children potentially a situation that they can no longer deal with. And that's what many people, you know, scientists that you talk to, and I speak to climate scientists all the time, are, are worried about that we're just going to eventually handle the situation that there's not going to be any way that they can control. Um, so that's the sense of urgency that you have in the science community. But 
in part because of this time lag, in part because things aren't really horrific now, uh, people just, you know, are very concerned about the here and now. They're very concerned about the economy, obviously. Um, they're very concerned about putting food on the table. You know, all of them, those very, very understandable concerns. So it's very unclear. It's very unclear to what extent, um, you know, the, the science will be heard. Yeah, this is Craig Edwards, and I'm a meteorologist. I'm probably one of the, the categories that, unlike the climatologists who have 95% confidence that humankind is inducing these changes in climate change, uh, the meteorology people are thinking, well, maybe there's only about 60% of us that believe in that change. But aside from that, I'd like to ask you, now that the President Obama has shown the leadership from the executive branch, how did the legislative branch, the people that have been in, in the, the houses in the Senate, for quite a number of years, how did they come together? And who do you see the people in Washington, D.C., that are going to make this coalition of bipartisan support to put together a package that is something that's tangible that can move forward with climate change issues? Well, there, there's, there's two things I'd like to say to that. You know, first, to address your first point, I, I think that, um, you know, just as I wouldn't go to a climate scientist to tell me what the weather is going to be like um, over the weekend, I, I have to say I wouldn't go to a meteorologist to tell me what the climate's going to be like uh, a generation from now. So, you know, when we as journalists go um, to talk to people about the climate, we go to talk to those people who have spent their lives uh, studying it. And if you talk to those people, uh, they are very confident. There's, you know, the IPCC report, which is scientists from all over the world, uh, who issued a you know very definitive report just a couple of years ago saying you know that climate change <laughs> is in fact occurring and when you think about it um, you know it makes complete sense from sort of basic uh, physics that climate change uh, is occurring and that you know when you add CO2 which is all we all know a greenhouse gas uh, the more you add you know the warmer the world is gonna is gonna become so that that's just sort of basic you know, climate science. But in terms of who's going to pull together, you know, the coalition that's going to actually get something done, that, you know, that's a very good question. There are many, many lawmakers working on it, and there are also is a big block of, you know, sort of undecided lawmakers. And then there's a significant block of lawmakers who aren't going to vote for any kind of proposal. So, you know, people like Henry Waxman, who runs the um, House Energy and Commerce Committee, he has a very significant bill on the table. Uh, there's uh, talk that it will go to markup, in fact, um, pretty soon. But he's working, you know, really hard behind the scenes, I understand, trying to round, round up the votes. And then in the Senate, um, Barbara Boxer is chairman of the Committee on Environment and Public Works, where climate change legislation would, would go through that committee. She's also, I think, working pretty hard to try to figure out, you know, where the votes are. So that's, a, that's an ongoing process, even as we speak, you know, even today, meetings are being held. Just quickly a follow-up on that. I think it was back in 2003 that McCain-Lieberman put together a what they called a Climate Stewardship Act that sort of took the global warming out of it but called it Climate Stewardship. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as a as a resurrection of a way to possibly get some of the uh, people that maybe are digging in their heels a little bit to move forward on some issues with uh, policymaking? Well, I think that, you know, the the issues are generally revolve around economics, Um the whole point of any significant climate legislation is to make, you know, fossil fuel energy more expensive relative to other forms of energy. Um, and if you don't do that, you know, it's very hard to see what impact it would have. And those states where uh, that have a lot of um, coal-fired power plants, uh, those, you know, auto states, those are states where people say, you know, are we going to lose more than we're going to gain economically from that? So, and that's a that's a big question. There are many, you know, studies that suggest, 
that these states, which are already being you know, very hard hit by the loss of the American auto industry, that there are potentially new jobs there uh, in other industries, in, in so-called clean energy industries, that, that would actually, they would actually benefit from these things. But people, you know, people take a long time to go through this information to see sort of how they think that their state is going to fare in all this, and especially when jobs are a huge issue, um, it's, it's, it's tough to bring those votes around. And the status quo, you know, as you know, when you just think about it, the status quo always has a lot of, uh, has a huge constituency. You know, we're all sort of constituents for the status quo if, if, we're, if we're doing okay. Um, but the future, and that sort of gets back to the point that I was making before about the potential to leave our kids this huge problem, you know, the future doesn't have such a large constituency. And, and you know we're we're heading in this direction, Elizabeth, where we're starting to talk about solutions. And it, you know, as a meteorologist myself, it's one of the areas where you know, as I study the climate scientists' work, you know, I can see the problem. I'm not so good at solutions. I'm not sure, you know, what the best way to go on this. There's talk of cap and trade. There's mm-hmm. even been some talk uh, reason recently about uh, geoengineering, kind of mimicking the reflectivity increase that you get with volcanic eruptions. What what the people you talk to are we coming to any kind of a convergence for what the best most economically sound solutions could be? Well, I, I think that you know all the economic studies point to um, what economists would call you know when you when you think about it, all forms of pollution are what economists call you know externalities. They are um, not part of the economic equation. So let's say I. I, I, you know, I make something, and I, you know, it, in the process, I create a lot of, of, you know, just conventional pollution, mercury or lead or something like that. Right. Well, you know, generally we have laws that say you have to dispose of that properly. You have to, and that's very, very often very costly. So we're trying to sort of incorporate the cost of the damage that that process does into the price of the product. So you know, when we did that, when we insisted that cars have catalytic converters and all those things, and air quality did improve. You know, we incorporated, we made those externalities sort of internal to the product. And any, you know, economist who had studied this says, would, will say, you know, that's the same thing with fossil fuels. If there's damage to, you know, to the general well-being by emitting CO2, then, then we all, we who use fossil fuels, you know, have to, have to sort of pay for that. And when you do that, people will come up with different ways of doing things, you know, to save money. Um, it will make other forms of energy that don't, emit CO2 uh, much more profitable. So we'll see a sort of gradual change in our energy infrastructure. And I don't think anyone, and although, you know, Lord knows um, many, many smart people have been thinking about it, has come up with a different answer. Now, sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, that's, that's hard. That's too hard politically. What we really need is an energy source of energy that's so cheap mm-hmm. <laughs> that we don't need to do anything, but people will flock to the, you know, the same way they bought iPhones, they're going to buy X. <laughs> And, you know, that's a very wonderful idea, and I wish that would happen, but so far X doesn't exist, you know. Um, and actually it turns out that burning coal, which is, you know, what we do for the, at least half of our electricity in this com- country, uh, is pretty cheap because we don't pay for those externalities. We don't pay for, you know, a lot of the damage that mining does. We don't pay for emitting CO2. So, um you know, countless economic studies have been done, and that's what they suggest. And most of them suggest that the cost of reducing CO2 to, you know, sort of tall, more tolerable levels would actually not be very great. I mean, over time, we're talking half a percent of GDP or something like that. 
Um, but as I say, it's, it's not necessarily easy to convince people who are in affected industries that that's the case. Elizabeth, um, certainly you have uh, <clears throat> achieved a, a, a great reputation in your writing. You articulate this issue about as well as anyone. I'm curious if, if we might intrude and ask you a little more personal question. Mm-hmm. In your role as a citizen in the local community there, or even more personally in your role as a parent, um, are there ways that you role model respect for the environment in your personal life? Well, that's you know that's a, a really good question, and um, I I, <laughs> I I have two answers to that. I mean, on the one hand, I I'm always very careful to say you know I don't hold myself up as you know the solution, and many people have you know tried to live. Uh, in ways they've written books about, you know, their own experiments with, you know, sort of low-carbon life, and I, I admire that, but I don't, I don't want to say if everyone lived like me, you know, this would be the solution to the problem because I'm a journalist, I travel a lot, travel is uh, hugely carbon-intensive, um, so, so that is a, a way in which I do not live a low-carbon life, and I, I would be the first person to, to point that out. Um, but uh, at home, I do with my kids um, in my house, uh, we do do all the things, really, I think that, you know, all those books that tell you how to um, reduce your carbon footprint would be, we have a pretty significant solar array on our our roof, Uh, we keep our house uh, very uh, cold in the winter, in fact, many people don't even like to come visit us, Uh, and it's hot in the summer, Uh, and we switched out all our light bulbs, and uh, we drive a very fuel-efficient car, Um, so, you know, all those things that... um, uh, you know, you sort of go down the list in your house, a very well-insulated house, switch out all the windows. Um, uh, we, I do try to do, and I try not to make, you know, my kids are very aware. We try not to make sort of unnecessary trips, um, just, you know, to run off and, and, and go get something. We try to group things together. We have all our appliances on power strips, and we turn them off at night, and, and, and all those things. But, you know, as I say, unfortunately, one plane trip that I take for work, you know, sort of wipes all that out. Well, Elizabeth, it's a fascinating topic still, and uh, your writing uh, certainly has been uh, a shining example of uh, kind of shedding some light on the issues of climate change. Elizabeth Colbert from The New Yorker, thanks for joining us today on Jet Streaming. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Yes, there it is. Weather, it's all around us, and it influences our every aspect of our daily lives. And yes, weather also plays a big part in the movies we watch. In some movies, weather is the star, in fact. And today we talk weather in the movies, and who better to do that with than our own Minnesota Public Radio senior editor and author of the Movie Natters blog, Ewan Care. Ewan, welcome to Jet Streaming. Thanks very much for having me along. All right. In recent years, the first movie that usually comes to mind uh, where weather took top billing was Twister. And I know, I think we've all seen it in this room multiple times at my place, of course. And what made this movie, Ewan, different from the usual disaster genre film? Not different, but really because it's a disaster movie, the special effects, obviously, are absolutely huge. And um, 
the idea that uh, you can actually watch trucks and, and specifically cows flying <laughs> towards you, which uh, really, it, it, in a way, it brings up one of the challenges, I think, about talking about weather in movies because, um, of course, cinema is all about illusion. You, you, you see these things that you actually wouldn't see anywhere else in the world. And the idea of you actually being able to stand in a tornado and watch a cow come at you it's patently ludicrous. Right, right. <laughs> but, of course, it's great, great entertainment. And actually, I, w- I was wanting to turn the tables on uh, you gentlemen and say, well, as meteorologists, as you see this thing, uh, these these movies, um, do, do they ever make you cringe? Because, obviously, it is. It's faked and may not be anything like the, the real thing. It, well, I cringe over the small stuff. I, I watch the times of sunset in the wintertime. It says, that can't be right. And then I watch the scene. As they're shooting a scene, and it's cloudy, and then it's sunny, cloudy and sunny. I says, they didn't even put the sequences of scenes together properly. And so I, I sort of look at the small stuff. And the big stuff, you know, I'm, I'm expecting other people to catch. I said, they're going to say that that can't really happen, like the, the day after tomorrow, <laughs> Mark, you know, that, that movie, The Day of Tomorrow, Cold right. Front, moving with the, you know. Climate wind. change in minutes. <laughs> yes, right. Instant climate change. Instant ice age. I hate when that happens. <laughs> you know, I, I noticed the small stuff too, Craig and you, and um, how many sun showers do we see in the movies where it's pouring rain and yet the sun is shining on these people that are getting rained on? One of the interesting things of Twister I noticed, too, and I don't know if anybody else noticed this, um, during the tornado scenes, when the monster violent finger of God F5 tornado is bearing down on the town of Wakita, um, if you listen to the audio track, I swear you'll hear, like, some monster sound effect noises. <laughs> there's, like, something going, <sighs> you know, there's Godzilla. a roaring in there, and and it is, in fact, the monster. In fact, that one of the mistakes I made with Twister was, inviting my eight-year-old, then eight-year-old son to watch Twister, despite the protestations of my wife, who said he was too young. I said, come on, it's a weather movie. He'll love it. And the first scene, of course, is the family cowering down in the storm shelter, and Dad gets sucked out of the storm shelter by the tornado. <laughs> Never saw my eight-year-old Luke's eyes so big. But uh... Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about the, the, the sound because I was just doing a little reading, and apparently the way they created the sound of the tornado was... Of course, they went out and recorded a camel moaning, and then they slowed it down. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm I'm serious. So that's <laughs> so that's the monster. That's <laughs> my goodness. My goodness. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But you know, I it's it's uh, I, I I wonder too. I mean, it, it gives you an opportunity to talk about other uh, weather phenomena, and of course, we have the perfect storm, um, which is really interesting. And and you know, the the term is now in. The, the language That's as right. a result of, of the book, obviously, and this idea that things coming together in such a, uh, an, an amazing way. And, and so, it's been adapted to politics and mm-hmm. just about every other. Yeah. yeah. So, but ultimately, I wonder if weather becomes important in movies as a way of having an impact on people and bringing about sudden change. I mean, one of my, one of my earliest memories about movies um, was uh, there's a movie called Captain's Courageous, which is based on a, a Rudyard Kipling novel. It's you know, great swashbuckling <laughs> stuff about a, uh, a young man who runs away to sea and befriends uh, uh, an old salt. And the, the it's actually a very there's a traumatic scene at the end where well I don't want to give it away, yeah. but um, it is caused by uh, the weather. There is a, an accident that's caused by the weather. 
and and actually it's really pretty unrealistic in a way but the the idea that there's this sudden huge cataclysmic change in an individual's life brought about by an external force well well let's stop there one okay. second because this is not movies this is real life reality okay. but i uh, any observer would have to say that katrina caused a cataclysmic shift in this country uh, and and you know I think it reached into political realms and and maybe it was the shockwave that really changed the direction this country was going. That's reality and not a mm-hmm. weather movie, but still it goes to what you're saying. It's a, it's a major weather event that can traumatize and affect mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And in fact, there's uh, uh, there have been some very interesting documentaries made about Katrina. Uh, and uh, the the of course my mind has gone completely blank now. But there was footage shot during the uh, well, just after the levee broke, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know if you've seen that stuff. It's just absolutely fascinating and, and horrifying, and and actually very unmovie like <laughs> yeah. in many ways. And and it seems to me that movies are hard to create. Reality is hard to create. Weather reality is hard to create, recreate in the movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just thinking, one of the very, well, I mean, in some ways considered like the first documentary, Nanook of the North. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that, from Robert Flaherty's uh, uh, piece about, it's about Eskimo life, which was shot back, what, in the 20s. And um, it, it was hugely popular because it was just this documentary about a, an Eskimo family living out on the ice and uh, the just how different it was. Um, there's actually a great story. I don't know if you've ever heard about the Flaherty went up there and shot his his film, but because of the way that the film worked at that time, you had to process it pretty quickly. So he would shoot during the day, and then he would go out and he'd have to melt snow to mix up the chemicals and then develop his own film. And if you've ever... In 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 the old, you know the the ways that we used to do thirty five millimeter film. Right. Like, of course, you do film the same way with these huge spirals. And he'd spent ages doing this, and he he made his film. He brought it all the way back to, uh, I believe, he was in New York, and he was editing it. And this was, of course, at the time when they were still using uh, the old nitrate film, mm-hmm. which has the same chemical composition as gunpowder. And he was smoking. And he actually threw a cigarette, which he thought was out, and he thought he was throwing it towards an ashtray, missed, landed in his film, and so destroyed the whole thing and had to go up and do it again. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. oh, that's commitment. And the dog, yeah, that's, eat, that's the commitment. dog eating your turn paper is no, no, no big deal. Right. Yeah. 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 How about you guys, Mark? Uh, you you, you and I'm, I'm, I'm struck uh, by, uh, I guess, when I watch a movie, uh, given my science background, there's there's two sides, two dimensions in terms of weather effects. There's the in-your-face weather effects that really capture your attention, you know, movies like Twister and The Perfect Storm and others. And then there's the mood-setter use of the weather. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a mi- murder mystery or uh, something along those lines, or maybe uh, maybe even in a comic setting like Young Frankenstein, you know, or something like that. It's strange how few murders happen on nice sunny days. That, that's <laughs> that's right. There's plenty of cloud and lightning and thunder and all mm-hmm. kinds of things going on. Uh, they used to call in the old days. They used to call the weather sounds in the movie industry Foley effects, named for the gentleman who created 
in the movie studio created the sounds, be they of thunder or rain falling or whatever. But in the modern era, uh, they mimic those sounds pretty well. I think they must use the actual... When you haven't got a camel around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you haven't got a, cam- a camel around, they must actually keep a stock of audio stock of uh, maybe some of these most severe cases. I wouldn't be surprised if they well, use Well, I, I think it's also a question of people going out and actually getting the sound. Yeah. Ma- making sure that they've actually got the, the genuine. And, and, and sometimes things don't sound like they, well, they, it's strange. Things don't sound like the way that people expect they should. Um, I, I once had a really fascinating conversation with a gentleman who actually records uh, for National Public Radio. And one of his big uh, challenges is to record wave sound, mm-hmm. which you think, oh, you're just going to stand at your microphone beside uh, out on the beach. and But actually, he recommended using, it was like a seven-microphone setup. So you could get the, 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 the build of the, the wave then you get the crash of the wave, and then you get the kind of um, the effervescence mm-hmm. at the end. And so he would spend hours putting up microphones, quite often, you know, many many yards apart, to try and uh, to get this sound properly. Interesting. I, I like your notion of weather scene setters, though, too, Mark. There's a couple that stick out for me. One, I don't know, this movie never got very popular. It's Robert Redford, Lena Olin in a movie called Havana. And at the end of the movie, there's a scene where Robert Redford is, it's based in uh, Cuba. And uh, he's, of course, and he's uh, reminiscing about what might have happened with Lena Olin, who he's separated from. And he's standing on Key West, and there's this gorgeous thunderhead out over the ocean. And just the music and the scene is just one of those things that sticks with you visually. And then, you know... Another kind of B-rate movie, but interesting, is Point Break with Patrick Swayze and, and Keenan Reeves and the concept of the 50-year storm, that they're searching to get the ultimate surfer ride on the 50-year storm. <laughs> so I, I like how those little threads get woven yeah, in yeah. as well. Well, of course, we should also talk about the other, what, what I suppose is, has been the ultimate weather movie in recent years, which you've already mentioned today, is Inconvenient Truth, mm-hmm. Al Gore's uh, uh, film about the... Uh, the, the climate uh, change and the though it's strange because that movie ultimately is it's a, a PowerPoint presentation with, with a few flourishes on it but uh, it really shows the the impact of the ideas about uh, what's going on in the weather and uh, how the it the the this this impact that we're talking about we talk about how the weather has an impact on people this impact is going to be so huge. Uh, and it's maybe something to to really think about. And we we have not yet mentioned the Wizard of Oz. I mean, oh, who could course. forget, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, I loved how that was in black and white and just great drama and that and the music. Of course, we all talk about the music and the setup of all that and the sound effects. But Paul, when you're talking about Robert Redford, how can you forget the baseball movie, The Natural? Oh yes, with, with the bolt of lightning and the thunder. <laughs> and what I've always liked with artistic uh, impression and artistic uh, what you can do as a as a movie director, you just say every bolt of lightning. There's thunder within two seconds, and we all know from watching the weather there's a there's an onset of the uh, the thunder about fifteen twenty seconds after the lightning. So, but most of the th- movies I've seen and the the video I've seen have always got the thunder immediately after lightning, even though it isn't raining. And I've always had problem with that. I said, boy, if you got immediate 
uh, thunder after lightning, you should have a heavy downpour. I got it. They need to hire weather consultants for all these movies. We'll just create some more job categories. C- could, I, could I just throw out one more um, movie, which I think if, if anybody has the chance, you should have a look at this. Uh, and it's Werner Herzog's uh, Encounters at the End of the World. It was actually up for uh, an Oscar uh, for Best Documentary recently. There's an interesting story of it. He is this maverick filmmaker. He's made some pretty strange movies, including the one where he ate his own shoe. Oh. But um, <laughs> where he lost a bet. <laughs> but um, he was one. He was editing one day, and he uh, looked up, and he saw one of his crew members was messing around with something on his laptop. And he said, that, that image, that is just so incredible. What is it? And he, I mean, he actually dumped what he was doing, ran into the other room and said, what is this? What is this? And it turned out that it was um, footage that had been shot underneath the ice at the South Pole. And it's this alien uh, I don't know, seascape, mm-hmm. just um, animals uh, that you had never seen before, this beautiful uh, kind of climate-created environment. And he became obsessed utterly obsessed with it. And he did two things with it. First of all, he got that footage. Then he got footage of um, a space shuttle mission. And he actually created a science fiction film. It's all done with a voiceover about a f- traveling to a flooded planet. and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really, you've you got to be in the right mood for it, but it's, it's kind of out sure. there. But he then actually got a grant to go down to the South Pole and he spent time with the the men and women who worked down there doing weather research, doing all sorts of research. And um, it's it's absolutely fascinating seeing the kind of people who are drawn to this work and the important stuff that they're doing down there, looking at the uh, the, the changes in the climate, but also just the, the history of the planet. It's well worth uh, a look at if you uh, have a chance to see it. Okay, and that was Encounters at the End of the World, or is that the Wild Blue Yonder? No, that's Encounters at the End of the World. Wild Blue Yonder is the, the science fiction film. All right, you and Kara, great stuff. Thanks so much for being here today. You're very welcome. Well, there's the thunder for you, Craig, and that uh, that means you're up, our weather website of the week this week, and I really like it. You found a good one. Well, I don't know how I came across this, but it's uh, called exploratorium.edu slant climate slant index dot html. So you go on there and find exploratorium.edu, and I came across this, and I thought, isn't this a clever thing? And it got my attention right away. So you can't rush to this website soon enough, if you ask me. Yeah, and very interactive, too. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to look I at it. I did look at it. It's very fascinating. And uh, our uh, weather word this week, Mark, this is an interesting one. I have not heard this before. No, it's, it goes along the lines with our discussion with Elizabeth Colbert, however, Paul. It's uh, SIP, which is an acronym, S-I-P, used by the Environmental Protection Agency for State Implementation Plan. And each state has to keep a SIP on file with the EPA in order to, uh, if you will, conform to the uh, Clean Air Act and the air pollution standards. And in fact, I'm guessing that with the EPA declaring carbon uh, carbon dioxide to be a, a pollutant now, that many states are going to have to revise their SIPs in order to uh, tell EPA how they're going to regulate and enforce uh, carbon dioxide emission standards. So that'll probably be coming forward in the coming years as a as an acronym, at least, that much of the American public will get used to. SIP. Right. All right. Interesting. Very good one. 
And uh, our listener feedback this week, of course, you can always drop us a line anytime and pose your question to our weather team. Just go to npr.org and find the jet streaming page on the program's drop-down box and click on Contact Jet Streaming. Now, we've got some news coming up for the next week. Our second annual Severe Weather Forum is coming up at the UBS Forum uh, Wednesday, May 6th at 7 p.m. This is your chance to meet the entire jet streaming crew and get your severe weather questions answered in person. Kathy Werzer, our jet streaming pal, will be there, as well as Paul Douglas, longtime Twin Cities meteorologist, and, of course, Craig and Mark and myself, as well as several other special weather guests from around the Twin Cities uh, and with regard to severe storm research. Tickets are free, but here's what you need to do. you got to go to minnesotapublicradio.org and click on Events. Look for the calendar on the right-hand side page for Wednesday, May 6th at 7 p.m. for the Jet Streaming Severe Weather Forum here at Minnesota Public Radio. Another great show, you guys. Uh, Mark and Craig, as always, it has been my pleasure. Good to have you back in the saddle, Paul. Nice show today, Paul. Thanks. Good to be here. That wraps this week's show. For producers P. Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and technical whiz Randy Johnson, I'm Paul Hutner. Be sure to keep your ear here to jet streaming and keep your weather eye on the sky. It's all right.